This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, my name is Dr. Jonathan Abel, Associate Professor here at CGSC DMH, and we are here today with Professor Dr. Tom Hansen. Welcome. Thank you. And we're going to talk today about the one of the major subjects of Dr. Hansen's research, which is the U.S. Army going into the Korean War and how the institution prepared for that conflict or perhaps didn't prepare for the conflict and what the result of that was. Um, so let's go ahead and start kind of at the beginning. Uh, it's, it's 1945. The wars have ended, uh, both theaters of World War II. What is the expectation on the part, first, of the American people and government with regards to the military, particularly the Army? It's superfluous at this point. The American people believe that their Army has saved the world from the two greatest threats to humanity since Rome, I don't know. Plus the Italians. Well, let's not get carried away. (laughs) Um, but with the ending of the Second World War by the use of the atomic bombs uh, fundamentally changed America's perception of how it was going to carry itself forward as a, as a great power. It was no longer going to maintain a large military force and threaten to use it if its interests were imperiled. Now it was simply going to fly a, a B-29 over you and drop an atomic bomb on you if you got out of line. Mm-hmm. And so uh, tapping into a very, very deep root of American exceptionalism, the idea of a standing army being perceived as a threat to freedom, it was, there was a great expectation that the army would be, would be reduced to some levels approximating its pre-1940 strength. Which is what normally happens in American history, right? Big army, fight the war hopefully win the war, and then immediately the army goes away. Well, and America goes back to some kind of isolationism. That's the tradition, at least. Well, it's small army, sees what's coming, tells Congress, which ignores the threat until it's too late. They throw lots of money at the problem. They create a large army, spend a lot of time, talent, and treasure to defeat the enemy, and immediately forget all those lessons and get rid of the army. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of people within the War Department and in the Truman administration who thought that maybe we should not do that after World War II. Unfortunately, the the fiscal hawks won, and so uh, already by the summer of 1946, Dwight Eisenhower, who has come home from Europe to replace Marshall as Chief of Staff of the Army, is lamenting that demobilization is going so fast and in such a chaotic fashion that there, there will not be an army left to defend what we won if we continue at this pace. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. By the time the, uh, the World War II era ends on June 30th, 1947, which is the official end of demobilization, mm-hmm. uh, you've gone from an army of 8 million officers and men to about 560,000. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, for some context, for, for people maybe not familiar with pre-World War II American history, 
for one, a, an army of eight million is massive in American history, especially if you accept World War One. Um, that's that's unprecedented. So it's not a question, if I'm understanding you right, it's not a question of demobilization or not demobilization. It's a question of how much demobilization. Is that correct? Correct. So, and then the other piece we have to consider is that both a political and an economic context, the economy of the late 40s is, is not good. So it's, it's not, again, not a matter of funding the military for all at once or nothing. It's a matter of kind of, as it always is, working it within the context of the current economy, I guess contemporary economy. Yes. Obviously, the American economy had been shifted to war production. Uh, it was not a total war economy. Mm -hmm. uh, there were still so-called luxury goods. There were still consumer goods being manufactured and made available for sale in the country um, all throughout the war, but not on the scale that Americans were accustomed to and not what they demanded as soon as the war ends in 1945. There was much less concern within the War Department for maintaining a procurement schedule just to maintain stocks at an acceptable level because there was an assumption that, well, we'd bought all this stuff for the war. We can survive off of that for several years before we really have to worry about it. Yeah, tanks don't expire in six months, right? So there's a certain logic to that. They don't expire, but they are often out-engineered relatively quickly, especially right. when you have uh, a, a, a paranoid authoritarian regime like the Soviet Union that has already developed a tank that is much better than our M4 Sherman. Uh, and they, they certainly are not going to demobilize in ways that we would. Yeah, and so that's a, that's a good transition. We've, we've kind of um, painted around the corners of what society and the, the, the civilian government are, are thinking. What's happening within the War Department? And, and for people who are not aware, it's still the War Department at this point. So what's happening within the War Department and especially within the Army? How are they dealing with these, these rapid changes and what they think should happen? The focus at the at the top of the War Department is not about force structure or procurement or theater strategies. We have a proconsul in Germany, Lucius Clay. We have a proconsul in Japan, Douglas MacArthur. Theater policy, occupation policy, is primarily in their hands, with some guidance from the State Department. The, the folks in the War Department, the, the uniformed service chiefs, and the civilian leadership is completely mesmerized by the idea of service unification. During the war, the, uh, the, the Uniform Joint Chiefs of Staff led you know, under the... Well, Marshall is often called the, the, the proto-chairman, but it's not really him. It's Admiral Leahy, who was Chief of Staff to the President, who was the ex officio chairman of the joint U.S. Joint Chiefs during the war. And let me interrupt you real quick to clarify a point. Uh, we do not yet have a formal Joint chief structure yet, right? We this is still the ad hoc World War II structure. Correct. So it's, there's no expectation that that will continue. Well, there's a demand that it, that it be formalized. There's, mm -hmm. there's a recognition that it functioned better during the, first, the, during the Second World War than things had during the First World War, mm -hmm. uh, which is surprising since it was no independent air force or no air force at all really in the first world war but uh, given the responsibilities of the the two theaters of occupation and other considerations there was a recognition that you needed to have a, a whole of government approach to national security and so the old state war navy coordinating committee was 
was viewed as a, a model that should be copied and institutionalized in legislation. And other countries have, to borrow the Prussian term, great general staffs too, so it would, it would put the U.S. on a footing with them to maintain one. Well, that would have gotten you thrown out of an office in 1945. <laughs> I think the, the, the model everybody was looking at was the British Committee on Imperial Defense. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a wider perspective look at national security requirements. And mm -hmm. so there's, um, there's legislation already in 45 that, and a, a, a push towards what was called service unification, which culminates in the 1947 National Security Act, which creates uh, an agency called the National Military Establishment, which has a staff of about 10, <laughs> that is grafted over the services, creates an independent Air Force, creates an independent uh, national intelligence gathering uh, capacity, and has a, a, a procurement side in the munitions board. And that works sort of well for a couple of years. The, the National Security Act is amended in 49. That's when the national military establishment is changed to the Department of Defense and you get a Secretary of Defense. Mm -hmm. um, and about the same time, James Forrestal leaves uh, the office uh, and is replaced by a man named Lewis Johnson. Uh, Johnson's an interesting character. Uh, he's had a, uh, at least one critical biography written about him. Not a professional military officer, uh, he's a professional politician and not a particularly good one. He's more of a party hack than anything else. He's, uh, he wanted to be Secretary of the Army uh, and, and he was an Assistant Secretary of the Army but then uh, angled successfully to have himself appointed as Forrestal's replacement. Uh, and he's, he's hoping to use that appointment as a stepping stone to succeed Truman as the nominee for, for, the, for the Democratic Party in 1952. Mm, interesting. So let's dive into some of these details. We, we, we've started this process, as you mentioned, of, of uh, what turns out to be kind of the pipe dream of service unification. And you have figures like, uh, like Bradley in the, the immediate post-war period. Are, are they on board with service unification? Do they want to keep their, their army traditions? Do we see the kind of modern service rivalries in these discussions? Well, the service rivalries never go away. Um, th there are varying degrees of enthusiasm for the program. Uh, the Navy is absolutely opposed because they see this as a, a, an existential threat to their autonomy uh, and to their, their tradition. Which is constitutionally guaranteed. It is. Uh, the Army is accepting of it because Marshall has been a proponent uh, and both Eisenhower and Bradley are Marshall acolytes and so they, they're not going to deviate from that position. The Air Force is all for it because it comes with the added bonus of an independent U.S. Air Force and so they see it as a, you know, th their support for service unification brings their institution to full independence and so the, the big war is between the Navy and the others. And, th and that's how the Navy sees it. So the Army is being rapidly drawn down, as you mentioned. Uh, the funding is, is um, a question mark at best. So what are people within the Army, not necessarily the, the Bradley folks, but maybe kind of the mid-level folks, the people who are, who are tasked with thinking about what the Army will do in the event of war, the, the assumption is with the Soviets. What are those folks doing as they're receiving these inputs in this, in this late 1940s period? 
Well, they're, they're still, they have a lifetime of validation of, of previous experience which governs how they think things are going to happen in the future. And so they've, they've internalized the Army's traditional response to a, a military crisis. You know, there's an alert, so you mobilize the population, gather them together, you train a mass army, and then you deploy it and fight. There's no recognition that that paradigm has now shifted and that now the order is alert, deploy, fight. There's, there's no room for training anymore, at least not for the initial forces that are going to be placed in harm's way. They're, all, they're still believing that the, the, the 1917, 1940, 41 model are, are applicable. And to, to give our listeners kind of a, an idea of what that looks like, so let's say it's, it's World War II and we're going to stand up a division. From the time that division guidon is created to the time that division is first shot at, what kind of time are we talking about? That could be 18 months. It, it was accelerated in the fall of 44 when they realized they hadn't created enough fighting divisions. But uh, under, under the standard timeline, it would be about a year between activation of a division and its deployment overseas into a theater, whether that meant right into combat or just as into the ready pool of, of units was about a year. And so that, that, that uh, 12 to 18 month cycle that, as you say, these military planners have in their heads, uh, how is that inappropriate now for the new Cold War? Well, they didn't see it as inappropriate because they thought that in the event of a crisis, the Air Force would stabilize the situation. Uh, one of the war plans of the time called Half Moon envisioned a, uh, a, a robust atomic response to any Soviet aggression in Europe uh, that would allegedly cripple the Soviets and, and force them back onto the strategic defensive, allowing the Western Allies sufficient time to mobilize and employ forces and then either return to the status quo ante or launch offensive operations to defeat and destroy the Soviet Union. So this, this model that these planners have in their head, uh, as you mentioned, we have immense changes taking place over the next few years, um, both in the, within the military and within even uh, kind of the world government, right? We stand up the UN, we create NATO, uh, we, we eventually get to the point of having a Department of Defense now that replaces the Department of War. So how does the thinking within the Army change given those massive changes leading into the 1950s, or does it? The Army is fundamentally a conservative organization, and so it's those who are looking at the future are, are looking at it with foreboding because they, they realize that if the war plan, if the war plans that are adopted privilege the Navy and the Air Force as the, the counter-strike arm of choice, then the Army really doesn't have much of a, a role except maybe for mopping up on occupation duties. And, that is anathema to us, to officers who have grown up in the tradition of the U.S. Army in the early 20th century. And so um, after the Korean War especially, you'll see all the machinations by uh, Maxwell Taylor to create atomic capabilities within the Army and to uh, mess around with Army organization to try to make it more survivable on the atomic battlefield. But uh, going into Korea, everybody goes into Korea fundamentally with a World War II mindset. 
that this is a, a typical ground war with you know, a front line of contact behind which you can conduct normal operations to uh, move forces around, resupply, refit. Uh, but when they go into Korea, they suddenly dis discover that there is no front line, that everywhere is the front line. And that, it, on top of all of the service distractions or, that have preoccupied them before the war, really sends the Army into kind of a crisis of identity for the first uh, six or eight months of the war. Okay, and that's a thread we'll certainly pick up later and uh, talk about Dear Maxwell Taylor as well. Um, let's talk about kind of the other half of the prep for the Korean War, which, as you mentioned, is um, a proconsul, or perhaps in his own mind, shogun, Douglas MacArthur, <laughs> and his forces in Japan and, and, and the other forces in the Indo-Pacific. So we've got all these discussions going on in the Pentagon and Washington and Congress. Um, what's happening with the occupation forces in, in Japan, but also in, in the wider Indo-Pacific region? There really isn't an occupation except in Japan. Uh, all the places that we had fought getting to Japan were restored to sovereignty or um, you know, other, other powers had protective interests over them. Uh, the Australians, for example, took a, a great deal of interest in Papua New Guinea. Uh, or, or they were colonial possessions and they were restored to their colonial masters, the French and the British. Uh, and the Dutch, much less well successful. Yeah, yeah the Dutch didn't hold on to it for too long. <laughs> um, but in Japan, uh, MacArthur is the emperor. Uh, he's the de facto emperor. Uh, there, is, there are four divisions, ultimately, that are, are assigned to occupation duty. They fall under the 8th Army, which was uh, commanded by Robert Eichelberger during the war. And he stays on until mid-48. Uh, to run the occupation. And initially, their sole function is demilitarization and demobilization of the Imperial Japanese Army. And, and they do that very well. Um, by the time Eichelberger retires in September of 1948, uh, the, the Imperial Japanese Army doesn't exist. Uh, the country has been completely demilitarized. Uh, all of its industrial capacity for, for armaments has been basically dismantled and either given to the Russians as reparations or retooled for something else. Um, and thereafter, uh, they were doing some military government stuff, but by the late 40s, already the United States is looking to rehabilitate Japan. And so uh, the occupation really becomes a hands-off thing. Uh, it's more like control from a distance than an obtrusive directive presence for the Japanese. So given who Douglas MacArthur is, uh, he's, if, if he's not the senior, he's got to be one of the senior most people in the military at this point. He is Douglas MacArthur. He is the victory in the Pacific, right? Uh, what's the relationship between the White House, Congress, the Pentagon, and this person sitting on essentially on the chrysanthemum throne in Japan? Well, remember, MacArthur has not been back to the United States since he left being chief of staff of the army in 1936. He's never seen the Pentagon because it wasn't built when he was the chief. Right. Uh, he has allies in Congress and he has presidential aspirations. Uh, he was a, he was thought to be a serious contender for the 1944 Republican nomination. Uh, he did deign to return to Hawaii to meet <laughs> President Roosevelt for a conference, but he was only there for a day. Mm -hmm. And so he, MacArthur is not in touch with 
the United States of 1945 or 1950. Uh, he still has very, very pre-World War II conceptions about what American society is, what it believes, what it values. Um, but there are people in Congress who support him either because they genuinely believe that he has better ideas or because they know that supporting him is a way to end this, what looks to be almost perpetual democratic rule in the country. Mm -hmm. And he is immensely popular, correct? He's, he one of, he's one of the better known Americans at this point. And he made sure that he was the better known general <laughs> in the Pacific because he controlled the, the press releases. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when you ask students in class, you know, Name a famous general from the Pacific Theater in World War II. The only one they can come up with is MacArthur. Right, and they're probably picturing the famous publicity photo of him striding through the surf in 1944. Right, the, the one that he had to redo because right. he right. was upset. The right. first person. <laughs> right. So we have this occupation army in, in Japan. And, and for context, you mentioned four divisions. Um, if, if, what's that in comparison to a contemporary, a modern U.S. Army? Um, what well, would be about 50% of the modern U.S. Army. Uh, back then it was about 40%. Um, but that's on paper. Right. Because as the demobilization continues through the, the you know, until 1947, and then there's a decision to let the draft lapse in 1947, uh, and then voluntary enlistments drop and the and army strength goes down even more and so the Congress reluctantly resuscitates it. But you, you, every division in, in Japan is, is manned much lower than it would be if it was at wartime strength. Uh, wartime strength at that point was about 18,000. Uh, they were authorized 12,000, which meant that you had maneuver units, infantry battalions, you know, tank companies and things like that, that might have two-thirds of their authorized strength, mm -hmm. but in, in actuality it was much less because the headquarters elements, the administrative side, was not going to run short. They were not going to do without. So they'd pull people up. They'd pull people up and have them work in functions that were sometimes outside of their normal skill set, but because they needed people to do that function. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe one out of every three companies may actually not be manned. Right. So uh, we've got this, this army that's doing occupation army things, and we'll, we'll circle back to that point. Um, as I understand it, the focus of the country and the military is in Europe, correct? Where there is also another occupation army, another, as you, as you call them, proconsul. Um, what is the thought about when the next war will happen, where it will happen, and what it will look like? You already mentioned there's an atomic element, but, but what's kind of the, the, the overall spirit of the establishment during this period? Well, most people think that the next war is going to be with the Soviet Union, and it's going to occur in Germany, and it's going to be over who controls Central Europe. But there's also a belief that the Soviets are not ready for that yet. Uh, there's, there's widespread recognition that what the Germans did to the Soviet Union during their occupation has, has set the Soviets back probably 20 or 25 years in terms of their economic and industrial development, not to mention demographics. Yeah, a lot of people died. <laughs> so there's a growing realization that the, the liberation philosophy of the Soviet Union, of the, of the Communist Party, even though there's no more common turn, there's still going to be Soviet malfeasance in, in a great many areas. And so there's, there's widespread fear of Soviet subversion of Western democracies. 
which is stoked, if, if I'm remembering correctly, by the infamous uh, Sources of Soviet Conduct article in 1947 by George Kennan. And, and Kennan is one of the, the early proponents of maintaining a force sufficient to deter the Soviets, but not necessarily attack them or threaten them. Uh, and initially, Truman thinks that's a pretty good idea, but then some other people get in there and they, they alter the, the meaning of, of containment, uh, mm -hmm. and they really turn it into rollback, and that's when you get all sorts of other things. But the, uh, the subversion of the Czech government in 1948 uh, and the, the imposition of the blockade uh, against the Western Allies in Berlin that same year, mm -hmm. uh, and then the really widespread popularity of communist parties in France and Italy mm -hmm. and Soviet-sponsored insurgencies in Greece and in Turkey have a lot of people's attention and to the point where the United States actually has military advisory missions to both Greece and Turkey to, to prevent them from being turned into Soviet satellites. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a little bit of recognition that that could also happen in Asia, but in Asia everybody's watching the Chinese Civil War and mm -hmm. lamenting the fact that Chiang Kai-shek is the leader of the, the nationalists because they, <laughs> they feel that if anybody else was in charge, the Chinese might actually perform well. Uh, I think the, the the roots of nationalist failure go much deeper than just one man. So what you're sketching for us then is an intense American focus on Europe and maybe a secondary interest in China, um, certainly from the perspective of foreign policy if in, in the military is, is less interested in that. So what does that mean for the forces under MacArthur? Uh, aside from demobilizing Japan and, and demilitarizing them, what do they see as their role? Until, until Eichelberger retires in 48, their role is an occupation force. And so they do uh, stabilization operations, which is, or stability operations like what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. Presence patrols, you know, some, some minor counterinsurgency, but really there's, there's almost no armed opposition to the American presence. Investigation of war criminals, uh, impounding of uh, looted properties from other countries and things like that. When Eichelberger retires, the Army chooses Walton Walker to replace him. Now Walker is a guy, uh, he, he's been responsible for recreating uh, a portion of the, the Army Reserve since World War II, so he's been headquartered in Chicago. But before that, he was one of Patton's corps commanders in Europe. He's viewed as a, a, a no-nonsense no combat officer who has a great deal of experience in training soldiers because he was the first commander of the Desert Training Center at Fort Irwin in 1942. Um, without getting into the office politics of uh, MacArthur's headquarters, MacArthur or, uh, Walker shows up in 48, looks around and says, you people are, are, you people are occupation soldiers. You're, you're fat, you're lazy, uh, you're ignorant of what you're supposed to be. And so he sets about to create a training program that he promulgates in the spring of 49 that says every person assigned to occupation now has as their primary mission the defense of Japan from a potential Soviet invasion. The occupation is over. We have civilians from the State Department who are guiding the Japanese toward rehabilitation. So now our, our presence here 
is required in order to, pr to allow that to happen under our protective umbrella. And so we will now develop a combat capability to defend against a military attack. So is Walker dispatched out of some recognition on the part of the, the government, the military, the army, that this transition needs to happen, or is he kind of taking this on as his own mission? I haven't looked deeply into that to find out where the impetus really lies in, in selecting him, other than the fact that he has a reputation as a trainer. Mm -hmm. And there's a growing recognition in the army. Um, this is right about the time that... that uh, Bradley replaces Eisenhower as, as chief of staff, that, that the Army's combat capability needs to be rebuilt. We're, we're done with the demobilization. We now have a, a sense of how big the Army is going to be, so let's figure out how quickly we can rebuild a combat capability. Walker is an obvious choice to do that, so he gets sent out there. Uh, and it, it's a good uh, inflection point for 8th Army. Uh, the previous commander is gone, new commander arrives, Mm -hmm. And it, it, it coincides with the uh, uh, elimination of the military government functions of Eighth Army. So uh, let's uh, let's kind of go down to ground level real quick to give our listeners some idea of what's happening in Japan itself. Uh, when you say occupation duty, when you say things like stability operations, to use a more modern term, um, what does that involve on the on the part of the you know the soldier, the NCO, the junior officer? What is that life actually like, kind of day to day, as these big policy questions are being debated? It's guarding facilities and you know, some maneuver, some training, but not really a whole lot. Uh, and it's, it, it's not very onerous. It's, uh, it's a, almost a colonial lifestyle. Uh, the, the duty day is not very long. Um, back then the Army had a six or a five and a half day work schedule. Uh, so Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday were full days. Wednesday was a half day. The afternoon was devoted to athletics, and Saturday morning was for inspections, and then you had you know, 36 hours off. Mm -hmm. not, a, not a difficult schedule by any means. And so the, to say that there was a, a, a deliberate or intensive occupation requirement is probably putting too much on it but, or, or assuming too many tasks underneath that umbrella of occupation. It was more a physical presence to remind the Japanese that they had been defeated. So what, what, are, the, uh, what are the kind of ground level junior leaders, how do they approach it? Are they having their men turn out for, for Reveille and do all of the you know, kind of intensive drill and training and instruction that you might expect of a typical army pretty much anywhere? Are they actually you know, letting their men become fat and, and integrate with local society and not really maintain military discipline? What's kind of, what's it like from that perspective? Well, the, the outward forms of military life don't go away. So there, there's reveille, there's physical exercise in the morning, there are formations, there is some training. Um, but at a typical work formation at, say, 9 o'clock in the morning, a, a company that is supposed to have 200 soldiers in it might have 90 show up. And of those 90, 50 are, are detailed to do other things, such as uh, control access to the installation at the gate, or work as clerks in the headquarters, or assist the quartermaster in cataloging equipment, or supervising local labor as they repair a road or dig a ditch or something like that. So 
to say that there's training going on would be to us without clarifying it would give you a false impression of what they're actually doing but the, the only training that's really going on is socialization into the forms of military life but without a lot of the substance and that's what walker really wants to change in 48 who are the men who are in this army the men who might be supervising the building of the road you mentioned that there's kind of a, a weird hybrid of of conscription and volunteering uh, and different policies change sometimes month by month so who is the typical eighth army soldier at this point it, it depends on what time you're talking about in 47 he's a draftee um, in 47, he's almost always a combat vet, except in the infantry regiments. Um, by 50, he's a volunteer. He's probably got 15 months in service. He's led by NCOs who might have two years more time in service than him. His first sergeant is a World War II vet might have been a commissioned officer in the war and then reverted to enlisted rank. Um, most of his officers are probably veterans of the Second World War, um, except the really, really young second lieutenants. So then we have this, uh, perhaps the most experienced generation of American soldiers commanding people who may not have any experience and not a lot of training. Am I understanding? That's That's pretty accurate I would say. So as you mentioned Walt Walker comes in and Walker sees it as his mission whether it's given or not he sees it as his mission to turn this into an army ready for what we would now call large-scale combat. Yes. So how does he approach doing that beyond you know they actually need to show up at Reveille? How, what, what's the plan here? Well he goes right back to the model that worked in World War II for mobilization of a division. You know, A division would show up at a training camp um, you would gather together this herd of men and call it a division and they would start with basic training. And they would do 17 weeks of literally basic training. This is marching, this is drill and ceremony, this is marksmanship. So he's going all the way back to the basics? He's, he's going all the way back to basic training. Uh, anybody in the Army, in the 8th Army, that had not been through the, pre the wartime 17-week basic training had to go back and redo basic training under the supervision of people in Japan. And then he began a progressive program of training from the lowest level at squads and platoons all the way up to divisions. And he knew that this was going to take some time. So he, he implements this on the 15th of April 1949. He says, by December 1950, I want the divisions to be certified as ready for combat. And we're both smiling at each other because, of course, the war starts that summer. Right. About in the summer of 50. So at, at that point, most of the regimental combat teams in that, that make up the combat power of the divisions have been certified, or you know, at least they've undergone a, a collective training event. Mm -hmm. But they're still not ready. Mm -hmm. And it, the, the staffs that are going to uh, employ these units in combat have almost no experience at commanding and controlling elements in contact with the enemy. So I think this is a point worth dwelling on because it's a point you make well in, in the research you've done on this. We have this, this centuries-old process, right, of starting with drill and discipline and moving through the echelons until you get larger and larger until you're maneuvering field armies, right? 
So what's the problem of doing this kind of, of cadre training in Japan as we move up to these brigade size elements like the RCTs? On paper, it's a foolproof system because it requires you to successfully pass a validation before you go through a gate to the next level. And in a perfect world, it would have been foolproof. But when you add in all of the variables from domestic politics that affected Army strength, Army strategy, and the Army's budget from 1948 to 1950, that's where you get all of the problems. Because the Truman administration cannot commit to a, a, a force structure for the military that it can live with for more than a couple months at a time. And so the Army fluctuates wildly in, what it's, in terms of what its authorized end strength is. And so 8th Army gets bulked up with personnel in one month only to receive a directive six weeks later saying you must reduce by you know, X, num X percentage of your strength in the next 90 days. And uh, uh, the focus, of course, is in Europe, so 8th Army is always going to be second best, right? Well, and Europe is not much healthier. Uh, again, there's, there's the U.S. constabulary in Europe, but it's also undergoing the same, or it, it's victim to the same variables. And they are also trying to do the same thing that, that Walker is doing in Japan. They so are this trying is an army-wide fiat, then? They are. Okay. It is. Um, and even units in the United States are, are attempting to recreate readiness, but uh, the only division that anybody would look at and say is ready and is called the Strategic Reserve is the 82nd Airborne, which isn't going to stop anything on the modern battlefield unless it's supported by everything else that can get there. So what's the, what's the space problem you talk about of training these large-scale units in Japan? The problem with Japan is that it's full of mountains. And people don't like to live in mountains, and so they live on the flat spots, which are all close to the ocean. Uh, and whatever flat spots don't have people living on them are devoted to agriculture. The Army needs lots of open space to conduct maneuvers so they can train to the standards that Army doctrine requires them to adhere to. Uh, the Imperial Japanese Army didn't need that much space because their doctrine did not require much finesse. It was basically get online, draw your samurai sword, and charge. And after 1931, I believe, they have a lot of space on the mainland. Yeah, they own Manchuria, so right. they can train the army in, in Manchuria. Um, there is a large maneuver space that had been occupied by the Imperial Japanese Army, basically at the foot of Mount Fuji, and that becomes the main large-scale maneuver training area for the 8th Army. But most other training areas are not much bigger than where you would maneuver a, a battalion of, of five or 600 soldiers. Uh, there's almost no space to fire artillery or mortars at the range where you could actually get a training effect. Not something you want to do around populations. They, they tend to frown on it. Um, <laughs> from a noise perspective as well as the, the potential explosive effect. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can't do tank gunnery anywhere in Japan, really, because there just aren't ranges that allow you to do that. What kind of space are we talking about? Let's say if we want to maneuver a division as a division, what kind of space do we need? Hundreds of acres. Thousands of acres. You, you're talking square miles. I mm -hmm. mean, 
when you look at the Louisiana maneuvers, that, that occurred across three states. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about maneuvering an army, a field army, to replicate combat conditions, you would need the whole of Japan. And they could have done that because they had assigned battle positions from which they were expected to defend. But the Japanese rail network and, and road network would not, could not support the movement of that much uh, military force without disrupting local economies. And then uh, the draw on resources in terms of uh, fuel for the, the vehicles, fuel for the train, maintenance for all of that was just beyond 8th Army's capacity. And so you end up having reduced force maneuvers, uh, things like a, a, a tactical exercise without troops, which is called a toot, uh, or a map exercise, or a command post exercise, where uh, units will deploy to a training area, but they will uh, not have actual units operating underneath their control. Everybody will be on a radio and they will simulate maneuver, but that allows you to at least test your command and control and your planning and orders processes. So from your perspective, both as a, as a, a retired officer and as a historian, what does this do to an army to not be able to practice physically with the divisions, with the artillery, with the tanks in the field? It saps the morale of the soldiers who are actually going to have to fight because every time they go out to do one of these canned exercises, they, they know exactly where they have to go because they've done it a dozen times before. They know that at a certain time of day they're going to you know, get up, they're going to advance 50 feet and set up a new position. And then in 10 minutes the aggressor force is going to come from 9 o'clock because that's where they always come from because that's the only direction they can attack from so we will be ready for them. We will say bang bang, they will say oh you got me, exercise done. So anybody who's ever done a repetitive thing at their job probably understands where yes, we are. Yes, it, it, it can be mind-numbingly boring because you've eliminated chance, you've eliminated friction in many cases, mm-hmm. you've eliminated variation. Which are all of the things we want in a, especially a training um, cycle for those staff officers you mentioned, the exactly. commanders. When, when everything is reduced to a script, then you eliminate a chance for officers to exercise initiative. And I think that, that definitely has an effect on how young company grade officers especially react to the challenges they face in the initial weeks in Korea because they're, they're just, constitutionally they are not ready to accept that level of responsibility because they've never had a thrust on them before. So that's a good transition. We've, we've got this uh, not ideal training situation in Japan. In Korea, we have a division between the Communist North under Kim Il-sung, the South, which is uh, euphemistically democratic. It's really, I mean, it's almost a quasi-fascist state mm-hmm. under Syngman Rhee. Um, there is no divided Korea. Both sides claim to be all Korea. Korea has not been an independent country since 1910, if I'm remembering correctly. So what's the U.S.'s and what's 8th Army's role in Korea prior to the shooting? None. 8th Army has no role in Korea. 8th Army's purpose is to defend Japan, and that's what they train on. Uh, There had been a division on occupation duty in Korea 
which was withdrawn in the summer of 1949. Uh, the colors from that division came to Japan. They replaced another division, which went back to the United States. The personnel were either demobilized or sent back to the United States. The only thing remaining in Korea as a military capability on the Americans' part was the Korean Military Advisory Group called KMAG. And their job was to assist the Korean constabulary uh, in suppressing internal uh, revolutionaries who had been infiltrated from the South or who were organic supporters of a communist regime. Mm -hmm. There was a, a conscious decision by the Truman administration not to give the re-regime any offensive weapons. And so they weren't given long-range artillery, they weren't given attack aircraft, they weren't given heavy tanks. Everything that they were allowed to do was focused on internal security using light infantry methods. So then the shooting starts in the summer of 1950. We're pretty sure the North Koreans started it. North Koreans come across the border. What does the Eighth Army do? The night of the invasion, one of the division commanders, Bill Dean, who's commanding the 24th Infantry Division, gets a call saying, hey, there's, this, there's a dust-up in Korea. We need to send some Americans as a show of force so the communists will go back across the border. We need you to send a battalion from your division. Now, the 24th Division was on occupation duty in uh, one of the southern islands, so it was closest to Korea, but it was not the, the most ready division in 8th Army. That actually would have been the 25th Division, which was on the southern half of, of Hokkaido. Uh, but because Bill Dean had previously been a senior officer in the Korean occupation force, they figured he knows Korea, he can pick a commander who can do the job well and get it done and, and extricate us within a couple days. So they call him, they said, send, a guy to, send some guys to Korea, you figure out how to do it, and then tell us how it went. So there's a scramble within the 24th Division to fill out a, a battalion task force because no, no battalion is at full strength. So they get uh, officers and, and soldiers from a multitude of units. They cobble together Task Force Smith, uh, Brad Smith, possibly the most unlucky officer in the U.S. Army in the 20th century because uh, he'd been at Pearl Harbor, at Schofield Barracks on December 7th. Uh, gets thrust into Korea. Uh, he lands at Pusan and then slowly takes the train north to Daejeon where he's trying to link up with the KMAG guys. And they just say, well, go north and, you know, the, the, the rocks are good, they just need some people who won't run when they see tanks to help steady their nerves. Mm -hmm. so we all know what happened. Yeah, and so, so for a brief summary, uh, Task Force Smith, essentially, they, they defend the position they're given, but it's, it's against three North Korean divisions or some? Well, it's, it's one division, but remember, Task Force Smith is, is an infantry battalion task force. It's, mm -hmm. it's got organic mortars, it's got an attached artillery battery, mm -hmm. And it's got about 400, well, 400 soldiers in three rifle companies and a heavy weapons company. So what are 400 soldiers plus some attachments? You know, maybe 600, 650 total. What are they going to do against a 4,000 soldier division that also has 30 tanks? And not just any tanks. These are T-34s because the Soviets built the Korean, the North Korean army uh, along their model. Mm -hmm. So Task Force Smith essentially gets run over. And then well, but, but th that's one of the points I make in the book. That, that Really, that's one of the reasons I wrote 
uh, I, I was interested in the research to begin with because when Gordon Sullivan was chief of staff of the Army in 92, he said, you know, I'm going to oversee the reduction of the U.S. Army after the Cold War, and under my watch there will be no more Task Force Smiths. Right. Which was a really, it, it was a good choice of metaphor, but it was really poorly explained because what that really meant was, you know, I'm not going to let Congress set us up for failure, but what it actually came out as was I'm not going to let soldiers slack off and, and not train. Mm -hmm. um, but when you look at what Task Force Smith achieved, they held off a division composed primarily of Korean veterans of Mao's army, advised by veterans of the Red Army's push against the Wehrmacht in 1944 and 45, mm -hmm. for seven hours with no air cover, with ineffective indirect fire, and no effective anti-tank capability. I think that's a pretty signal achievement, and they probably deserve more, much more recognition than they've gotten. Yeah, fair point. Um, what happens after Task Force Smith, uh, let's, say, let's say, withdraws? What, what, what's 8th Army then doing? Well, 8th Army is still not on the ground. Uh, at this point, the rest of the division is flowing behind Smith, this is 24th ID? This is 24th Division. Um, so immediately behind Smith, you have a battalion from the 34th Regiment south of him at Chonan. Same thing happens to them. They get rolled up from the flanks uh, and, and chopped into bits, and they withdraw as well. And you get a series of these actions that, that hop down the, the peninsula until you get to Daejeon, where the 24th Division is headquartered. And the, the attacks become so effective against the division that the division disintegrates. And the division commander, Bill Dean, seeing he's lost control of his division, grabs his aide and a bazooka and says, well, at least let me go kill a tank before I die. And so he becomes the, the senior-ranking American captured by the communists in the Korean War. Mm, interesting. So you mentioned there are four divisions in 8th Army. Uh, as the, the fighting moves south around the, the city of Busan into the Busan perimeter, um, what's happening with those forces? Are they being pushed into Korea as well? Yes. At, once the 24th gets on the ground and, and their reports come back to Japan, there's, there's clearly a requirement to send more combat power. So the 25th comes over almost immediately, uh, followed by the 1st Cavalry Division, which was MacArthur's household guard, basically, in Tokyo. <laughs> but uh, they come over. But... Again, because these divisions had been manned at about two-thirds strength, the 4th Division, which is also way up north on Hokkaido, the 7th Infantry Division, has basically been robbed to fill out the other divisions. And so all through the summer, they're being refilled with Korean augmentees to the U.S. Army, most of whom have no military experience and speak no English. So, The recipe for success. It, it, it Well... They did surprisingly well, despite all the hardships. I remember the 7th ID was, was par partnered with the 1st Marine Division for the assault landing at Incheon. And so um, throughout the summer, there are a series of battles. Uh, the 2nd Infantry Division is brought in from Fort Lewis. The uh, Provisional Marine Brigade is brought in from the United States to plug holes in the perimeter. Uh, and then they're withdrawn to help fill out the 1st Marine Division 
which causes some problems for Walker, but by then he's got the front stabilized enough that he's not going to lose the perimeter, but he just can't launch an offensive. Mm -hmm. uh, but then after the Inchon landing, 7th Division attacks south, links up with the 8th Army attacking out of the perimeter, and that's what proves to be the undoing of the, uh, the North Korean army. Yeah, and from that point, the, the North Korean army essentially disintegrates, right? And then, then UN forces roll north, and then China gets involved, and at that point it's, it's kind of a different war, right? Well, and it, it, that's MacArthur's words. It's a whole new war. Right. So we've, we've spent a whole lot of time talking about the war we expected. And you mentioned earlier that the expectation was a World War II-style, you know, Eisenhower broad front, two up, one back, you know, fix the front, attack the flank, move on to the next fortified city in Germany. Um, how is that different from the war that we get in Korea? There is no broad front uh, until you get north of the 38th parallel in the fall of 1950. Um, there's no rear area. The, the North Koreans are masters of the infiltration tactics. Uh, they. they they understand the weaknesses of the American Army in 1950 very, very well. They understand that it's a, it, it's a high-tech-based automotive army, and it's, it has become road-bound, especially in, in Korean terrain. The best analogy for Korea was not the island-hopping campaign in the Pacific or Germany, but Italy mm. because of the mountains. Mm, and yeah. They had paid more attention to operations going for up to Rome in 1944, they, they probably would have done better at, at some of the tactics and techniques that they used. Interesting. And, and Rome, uh, the, the Italian campaign is not one where the United States performed, it performed well, it won the war, but it was not the kind of signal uh, tactical operational victories that we think of in World War II. Well, it was over, overshadowed by operations in Normandy. Right. Um, and right. Mark Clark had a very prickly personality, so he, he, was, he was not as, as media-friendly as, as others were. And so mm -hmm. he, it, it was harder for the Americans to get excited about beating Italy, because Italy was always seen as the junior partner in, in, right. in the Rome-Berlin pact. So it makes a certain amount of sense that nobody is looking at that and saying, this needs to be our model moving forwards. How fast did, you know, from, from the soldier who was on occupation duty up to a, a Walton Walker, how fast did the U.S. Army adapt to this new kind of war? Well, I, for the soldiers who followed the 24th Division to Korea, it was days or weeks, uh, depending on the unit, because unit progress during the training was very uneven. It, you couldn't just look at a division and say, okay, every unit in that division is good. Like uh, in the 25th Division, the 27th Infantry Regiment had actually done very, very well. Um, despite the fact that it had a succession of commanders who were not combat veterans, who were really over age for their position, and they had really earned the position of commander as a reward or as, you know, you know before you retire, we're going to let you command this regiment so you can say you, you were a, an infantry commander. But mm -hmm. um, the battalion commanders did very, very well at, at getting their men ready within the constraints of living in Japan at the time. And then as soon as the war starts, 11 of the 12 regimental commanders in 8th Army are replaced almost immediately. And World War II infantry veterans are brought into command. And so the guy that commands the 27th is a... Uh, 
the former commander of the 502nd Parachute Infantry from the 101st, uh, Iron Mike Michaelis. And he's, his regiment basically becomes Walton Walker's fire brigade. Wherever there's a problem in the, in the Pusan perimeter, it's going to be the 27th that goes to fix it. Mm -hmm. and, and gradually, other units attain a similar level of proficiency. Which is a not atypical outcome for an American force, right? There's this, you mentioned uh, at, at one point, uh, the, the, the stoffed um, standing up of, of CSI. Uh, there's a book written by Stoft called America's First Battles, and, and the idea is America charges into war, loses, but then very quickly figures out how to win. Right. So that's if I'm reading you correctly, that's what you're saying is also happening in Korea. And that was an accepted pattern of events. Um, Brad Smith's regimental commander was a guy named Stevens. And he said, Brad, don't worry about what happened at, at Osan. No, no unit is any damn good until it's first fight. Mm -hmm. And nobody expected anything different. So you mentioned earlier too Maxwell Taylor. So let's let's shift gears and move forward um, to after the war. What's the army's reaction after Korea? How is it going to, to borrow the quote, have no more Task Force Smiths in the nineteen fifties and early sixties? Well, it, it's tough for the army to survive after the war because there's a new administration. It's a fiscal hawk administration, just like pre nineteen fifty even though it's a different party. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a return to a reliance on atomic weapons or nuclear weapons as a principal defense. And so the Eisenhower administration comes in and within a year they get the new look and then you know, mutual assured, or massive retaliation slash mutual assured destruction, mm -hmm. which means... Lots of nukes. We're, we're not going to promise that our only response is going to be nuclear, but there's a good chance that it will be. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're not going to respond every time you think we should respond. And so in 1956, for example, when the, the Soviets go into Hungary to put down the rebellion, some people are expecting the Eisenhower administration to drop some nukes on Moscow. And he says, no, it's not our fight. Yeah, same thing in Cuba, too, if I remember correctly. There was kind of a hands-off approach to that. Uh, different administration, other problems, mm -hmm. you know, also much closer to the American coastline. So mm -hmm. Not, yeah. not an ideal target for atomic weapons. Right, yeah, fair point. Might drift over Florida. But uh, in 54, uh, the French are demanding that Eisenhower use nuclear weapons against Hanoi. And mm -hmm. he says, no, that's not, that's not appropriate. Right. So uh, what, what is, you mentioned Taylor and, and uh, the, the Pentomic Division, the infamous Pentomic Division. So how is Taylor's Pentomic Division a response in some way to, to Korea and, and what happened going into Korea? Well, it is a, an attempt to create a more readily deployable force, but it's, it's fundamentally a bureaucratic response to a threat. Uh, Taylor's immediate predecessor was his, his rival, Ridgway, um, and Ridgway only got one term as chief of staff of the Army uh, because he clashed so repeatedly and so publicly with Eisenhower mm -hmm. uh, that Ridgway, or Eisenhower just said, I've had enough of you. So Taylor comes in, he understands that there are limits to what he can say about the threat to the Army's existence and its traditional role in, in wartime if he speaks his mind. And so instead he goes about and creates an organizational, a, a force structure response, which is, okay, you want to have a nuclear strategy instead of a strategy for the nuclear age? 
here's what we're going to do. We're going to create army forces that can fight and win on a nuclear contaminated battlefield. And to do that, they're going to have robust offensive maneuver capabilities, and they're going to have their own nuclear capabilities in the form of tactical nukes, which is something new. And that's when you get the, the Davy Crockett and some other questionable <laughs> procurement decisions. Right. But Th that's, what the, that, that's what the Pentomic Division is. Instead of having a triangular division with three infantry regiments, you have a division that has five autonomous battle groups that can maneuver independently of one another uh, around the battlefield. And if one gets taken out or two, you still have significant combat capability to conduct operations. And I think this is a good example of the, the, the problem of what we were getting at in the 40s, where if you know Korea's happening and you know what, what's going to happen in Korea, it's really obvious to say you need to do things one way. There's one solution. But Taylor's failure with the Potomac Division, I think, shows us that, it, especially without the benefit of hindsight, sometimes you can take big swings and miss in a, in a very big way. And I, I think that, that you know, to, to conclude this, um, what would you say that someone should take away from looking at this period? Looking at the U.S. Army trying to grapple with the post-World War II problems it faces going into Korea, besides the, the kind of generic, you know, uh, don't ever let your guard down type lesson. <laughs> or don't get involved in a land war in Asia. Right, unless you're a Mongol. Um, yeah. The problems that beset the U.S. Army going into Korea were not necessarily of the Army's making. I mean, there, there were some internal policies and procedures and decisions made that definitely handicapped the Army going into Korea. But the fundamental problems lay beyond its control. It, it, it lay with the country's inability to reconcile its new status and role as the de facto guarantor of stability in the world with a perceived inability to afford the military capabilities that would allow it to do so. And, and a still significant reluctance on the part of most Americans to support a robust foreign policy that really would have allowed the Truman administration to, to leverage all aspects of national power, not just the military ones. Mm -hmm. And so I think... It, it's, it doesn't all come down to strategy, but strategic considerations and a, 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 a better conception of national strategy would have made Korea a much different fight, I think. What, uh, if there are any, what positive lessons might be taken away from this? Because I, I, I think you've rightly hit on some of the deficiencies of the period, but is there anything positive to learn? Definitely. Um, leadership matters. The resilience of the average American whether it's a civilian watching what's happening or somebody in uniform. Um, the, the power of the American soldier to, to adapt and grow in a very short time because of the way that we facilitate their socialization into the military. We don't grind off the civilian. We don't dampen their ability to exercise initiative. Um, that it, it may not get all the emphasis it, it needs at all times, but. Uh, generally, in a crisis, the American soldier can, can rise to the challenge and, and develop a workable solution in a very short time. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. Dr. Hansen, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, 
Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.